All right, so this morning we are in Genesis uh, chapter 21 and 22. You can turn there if you have your Bibles with you this morning. Uh, I will not be uh, asking everyone to, to stand for the reading. We're going to kind of read it throughout uh, this morning, but we will be in Genesis 21, and then later on we'll be looking at Genesis 22. So uh, I'm going to start in uh, Genesis 21 verses 1 to 5, and I'm reading from the ESV this morning. So the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And so, as I said, we'll, we'll continue on in the story in a little bit. I think the temptation for us when we read stories like this, and, and there's a lot in the Old Testament especially, uh, when we read these stories, the temptation is to kind of keep them tucked away somewhere, om- almost as a, a moral guide, uh, almost as it's like so unbelievable. Like, what, what does this have to do with us? You know, you read Jonah and the whale, and we go, okay, I'll stay out of the water and watch out for whales, I guess, is the moral of the story. Or, you know, you read stories like this and you go, okay, what does this have to do? You know, having a child when when Abraham and Sarah were so old, and then as we will see, uh, God asking them to sacrifice him, it just sounds so unreal. So what are we supposed to do with these stories? Eugene Peterson writes, the Christian faith has no time for ideas or feelings, or sentiments, or sideshows that don't get lived. But what most of us want to know is, does it happen? Can it happen here? And is it living? We must ask the stubbornly practical questions when we come to God and to church. I have no patience with the truth that cannot be lived, and I don't want you to have any patience with it either. Our story today... um, is a story that speaks to our present reality. It's a story that can be lived. It's a story that must be lived. So let's, let's jump through that. Abraham and Sarah have been, have been given this promise as, as we've been following along in the gospel project, we, we, we've been, you know, following this story. They've been given this promise uh, from God that they would have a son. And unfortunately for them, it seems that this promise took just too long, 25 years until it came to be. It was just too long. So long that Abraham and Sarah decided to take the promise into their own hands, and they decided to conceive a son outside of Sarah's involvement. Uh, But that's not what God had in mind, for nothing is impossible for God. It's significant that Abraham gave his son the name Isaac. Isaac means laughter, which has been, as you probably know, it's been kind of a theme throughout these 25 years in their story, right up to Isaac's birth. The laughter that has resulted in Genesis 22 is one of joy, excitement, and wonder at the works of God. You see, over the 25-year promise, Abraham and Sarah lost their hope and wonder in God, and it would be hard to blame them. This appears to be the way God operates. He rarely reveals the full plan to his people. If you were to tell Abraham and Sarah the exact day the promise would be fulfilled, then maybe they would have been more patient counting down the days. God, however, wanted them to practice wonder and hope. 
We are afraid to hope because it makes us vulnerable. What if we're wrong? When uh, the pandemic first started, I remember telling people, so we're in March, I said, yeah, you know, hopefully by June this will be wrapped up. And I remember people going, whoa, June, that's a long time. I was obviously way off. We're afraid to hope because it makes us vulnerable. What if we're wrong? Uh, And I have no doubt that today most of us have become a people of hope fatigue. We have slowly lost hope in the supernatural, in God, perhaps because we have placed our hope in the wrong things, assuming it is God, or we have grown tired of waiting for God to come through on his promises for us. Am I having mic problems? Is it coming in and out, or is it okay? Is it all right? Okay, okay, good. Just in my head, perfect. (laughs) So the the start of the Christian life is rooted in hope. The hope is something so outrageous, uh, could it actually be true? Timothy Keller says this, people reject the gospel, not because it promises too little, but because it promises too much. In Romans 15, 4, it says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Have you lost any faith in God? Do you laugh at the promises of God because they're so outrageous? Or do you laugh in utter joy because you know God will come through for you? In Genesis 18:15, Sarah laughs at the promise. This is earlier in the story. Sarah laughs at the promise God made. She lost her wonder in the supernatural. She lost her hope. And even outside of, of relationship with God, Uh, I think we naturally lose wonder and hope as we get older. It's a lot of fun uh, as a parent seeing your children grow up and experience new things, things for the first time, things they've never seen before. We have a lot of fun with with Nora and Miles with those kind of things. And and on Friday night, we went to uh, the pool in town with our kids, and uh, the Hepners joined us, Riley and Nicole, and they brought their one-year-old, Oliver, And this was the first time Oliver has ever been to the pool. And so it was a lot of fun watching Oliver. I mean, he was pretty cold for a while. He really liked the hot tub like his dad. Uh, But then we went to the deep end, and Nora and Miles just kept going over and over and over and over. Ollie, Ollie, watch this. And then Miles would do this crazy weird jump that I think made the lifeguards nervous. And he would jump into the deep end, and then he'd come up, and then Ollie was clapping his hands and smiling and just was so cool to watch. And they'd just do it over and over and over again. But why do we lose that? Why do we let God's creation become dull and ordinary to us? Why do we explain away the potential for supernatural in our lives? And this is, this is what happens to Susan in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's the most terrifying event that happens in the whole series. Susan loses her hope and her wonder. In the last battle, Susan is is conspicuous by her absence. Peter says that she is no longer a friend of Narnia. And in Jill Pohl's words, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. And Polly Plummer adds, she wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now 
and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. Thus, Susan does not enter the real Narnia with the others at the end of the series. Spoiler alert, sorry guys. It's only been around for I don't know how long, but anyway. But like visiting Narnia, we can wonder again because of Christ on the cross. We have been made free. We have been redeemed. We should live like it. If you visited Narnia, you would never be the same again. When you come to know Christ and what he did for you, you will forever be changed. We lose our wonder when we become more preoccupied with the world around us and we lose our hope in the supernatural. Don't let the passing of time rob you of your wonder and hope in the works of God. Once the promise is fulfilled for Abraham and Sarah, that very promise gets tested. So we're going to be reading in Genesis 22 now. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back or come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order uh, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. During the Second World War, there was a man who showed a tremendous amount of faith. Born in 1922, Hiro Onoda was quickly signaled out for his special intelligence training in the Japanese army. He learned guerrilla warfare, philosophy, history, martial arts, propaganda, and COVID operations. In 1944, now an officer, he was sent to Lumbang Island, 150 kilometers southwest of Manila in the Philippines during the waning months of World War II. Onoda's orders were clear to hamper enemy attacks on the island, including destroying the very airstrip which he arrived on, and never to surrender or take his own life. That one command was Onoda's driving force. 
He engaged in guerrilla warfare, and in 1945, when Japan surrendered, Onoda thought it was a ruse. So he continued living by that same rule, never surrender. To inform such soldiers hidden in the jungle that they could now return home, Japan dropped leaflets from the air. But Onoda still didn't believe the news. The leaflets they dropped were filled with mistakes, so I judged it was a plot by the Americans, he said. Onoda was sure that the leaflets were Allied propaganda aimed at capturing Japanese soldiers. Together with three other soldiers, Onoda continued fighting a guerrilla war. They survived off bananas and coconuts and pilfered rice from local farmers. They killed 30 island inhabitants over the years and evaded police shootouts. In 1950, one of the other rogue soldiers he was with surrendered to Filipino forces. Anoda thought that this could pose even greater danger to him, and he became even more cautious. Another one of the soldiers was shot dead in 1954 by island police officers. Then his final ally was also shot by local police much later in 1972. Each incident further cemented Onoda's idea that the war continued. For 29 years, Onoda stayed in the jungle, mostly living in underground caves. He spent his time gathering intelligence on enemy movements, as his job required him to do. For his final two years, he was alone. Onoda showed characteristics rarely seen in the modern world, but those which make the very best soldiers. Asceticism, un undeviating will, obedience, loyalty, and sacrifice. However, the skills he learned in his early training ultimately proved critical to his survival. Onoda was officially declared dead in 1959, but a Japanese student, Norio Suzuki, refused to believe it. In 1974, almost 30 years after World War II had ended, he set out to locate the missing soldier. Incredibly, he managed to track Onoda down just four days after beginning his search. The pair quickly became friends, but Onoda told Suzuki that he would only surrender after receiving official orders. Suzuki returned to Japan with photos to prove their encounter and to locate Onoda's still surviving commander officer, commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, for whom the war had long ended. The following spring, Suzuki returned with Taniguchi, who officially relieved Onoda of his duties, after which a weeping Onoda surrendered. With him were a sword, a functioning Arasaka Type 99 rifle, 500 rounds of ammunition, several hand grenades, and the dagger that his mother had given him in 1944. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi had promised the young hero Onoda at the beginning of his service. And true to his word, Taniguchi returned for him at long last. When Onoda returned to Japan in 1974 at the age of 52, he was still wearing his old imperial uniform. He was pardoned by then-president Morocco's of the Philippines for the crimes committed while he still believed that he was at war. His family, who had thought he was dead, saw him for the first time since he was 22 years old. When asked in 1974 what was going through his mind for those 29 years in the jungle, Anoda said simply, nothing but accomplishing my duty. The first words, and you may have already picked this up throughout the story, the first words Abraham says to God when he calls him is, here I am. That's very significant. It shows that Abraham was willing to follow and do the Lord's will. He was ready. God tells him exactly what he wants him to do. 
and, sh- and Abraham shows no sign of wavering. It says, early the next morning. It wasn't like Abraham sat down for a couple weeks to think this through. He gets going on the command, and there's a calling on Abraham's life, and he listens. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham just waited 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled, which he previously wasn't given every single detail about. Now he was asked by God himself to do something which did not involve a lot of details again. So why? Why did he do this? Because he had returned to wonder and hope in the supernatural. Was this an easy command for Abraham to follow? Of course not. But he had absolute certainty that God would provide. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Abraham figured God would bring Isaac back to life. It says in Hebrews 11, 17 and 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Like Hero Noda, Abraham had unwavering dedication to the instructions given to him. Even as Abraham took what, was, what, what had to be the longest hike of his entire life, even as he laid Isaac on the altar, and even as he raised the knife, Abraham was all in. He had not lost the wonder of the supernatural power around him. He knew God wouldn't let him down. And we know that in the story because of the way that the angel says Abraham's name. You know, Abraham, Abraham, he warned, like, the knife is in the air, he stops him. And I know that I just couldn't do it. I couldn't take miles up that hill. I'd be bawling before we even left the driveway. And of course, God would never ask this of me. But I can hardly stay true to some of the things that God does ask of me. And it's important to note that at this time, in this story, it wouldn't have been completely outrageous for Abraham to understand what God was asking of him. God calls Abraham to give Isaac as an offering. He doesn't ask him just to simply murder him. Abraham would have understood the giving over of the firstborn. Everyone owes a debt to God, and the ultimate offering that could be made is of the firstborn. God was calling in his debt by asking for Isaac. The reality is that God has the right to call in this debt, and Abraham knew it. How did Abraham do it? Was it pure will and determination? I think there is only one answer. He had to trust God because there was no other option. In 2 Chronicles 20, it says, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Your spouse passes away and you have children to care for. Perhaps debt is piling up and you lose your job. Maybe your family members have lost their faith in God and they've walked away. What do you do? There is only one good option, and that's trusting in the promise of God and holding fast to the wonder of the supernatural. To quote 
the movie Frozen 2. When one can see no future, all one can do is the next right thing. And the next right thing for us all the time is to trust God. The Gospel Project says Abraham's willingness to give up his son was a foreshadow of what God himself would do one day. In John 3.16, Jesus tells Nicodemus, a sympathetic Pharisee, that it is the love of God that led God the Father to send God the Son to earth to die in the place of humanity. What was an unpayable sin debt on your, our part was paid in full by the death of Jesus. In his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus truly took upon himself the covenant curses of Abraham and all those who share his faith. God himself in Christ paid the price for our failure to keep the covenant so that we might live. Because we have experienced God's resurrection power in Christ Jesus, we share the gospel with everyone, trusting that God can give new life to all who are spiritually dead. So if you are meeting in a community group or perhaps in, in, a, in discipleship triads, groups of three, consider talking about these questions together. I'm going to go through them right now. The head, the heart, and the hands. I think these are good. It says, God's call to Abraham to sacrifice his son is a reminder of the payment that had to be made for our salvation. In order for us to be saved from the wrath of God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for whom there was no substitute, to die in our place. This helps us to understand that the grace of God isn't all sunshine and rainbows because sin can't just be forgiven. Our sin has eternal consequences, which were placed on the eternal Son of God for all those who believe in him. The question is, how does Jesus, as our substitute, affect the way we see the need for repentance? And the heart, Jesus' Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross in our place demands that he have our soul allegiant. Each and every time we give ourselves to sin, we communicate that Jesus' death in our place wasn't that amazing. But the love that Jesus displayed on the cross was the greatest act of love the world has ever seen or known. As such, we should respond by giving ourselves to the worship of Jesus. With all that we are and all that we have, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf deserves our full and soul allegiance. So how does Jesus, as our substitute, push us to seek accountability for our sin? I believe these are in the bulletin in the handout as, in the handout as well. In the hands, the gospel is amazing because it is the good news that our sin debt has been paid in full through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. The gospel is wonderful because it is good news, which is what gospel means. Good news that is meant to be shared. The gospel is the greatest news ever told. It is the news that should be a part of every conversation we have with those who don't know Jesus because Jesus didn't just die for our sin, but for the sin of the world. If we believe that Jesus' substitution is the greatest news ever told, then we should share that news with urgency with those who do not know or haven't received it by faith. So how might you share the gospel with someone who feels he or she can never be good enough for God? God isn't going to show us every step ahead. He isn't giving us the full picture, and that's okay, because we are required to trust him and keep our hope and wonder in his wonderful character and power. We must trust God's character in everything we do. 
And we could do so because of the work of Christ on the cross. Isaac, the sacrifice, was spared by a ram caught in a tree. And we have been spared by God's Son, who was nailed to a tree for us. God the Father took his Son, his one and only Son by the hand, up Golgotha, and he gave him up for us all. How could we not see that and have changed lives? And Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christianity is a calling. It's a calling to trust in the promise of Christ on the cross, on the cross who will one day return for us all. Like Hiro Noda, we are to stay on mission until our commanding officer calls us home. Growing as a Christian is to continue to hear the call and obey. God doesn't always give us the full plan, but he tells us to start moving. Friends, we cannot lose our hope and our wonder in the cross. If we do, our lives will become all about the wrong things. We will become more concerned about what is going on around us. We will, we will lose our focus. We will laugh at the plans of God because they sound so outrageous when instead we should be laughing in joy about how amazing and powerful and wonderful God is. When we keep our hope and our wonder in the cross, we remember that each day we are called to live with purpose, not only relying on the promises of God, but sharing those promises with those around us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that this story isn't just an old relic that we can kind of take some things from and enjoy or wonder if it ever happened. Lord, we thank you that your word is true and it teaches us today, all these years later. Lord, like children, help us not to lose our wonder and our hope in your creation around us and the work that you are doing every day. The very fact that we are here breathing is such a miracle and such, yeah, such an amazing power that you, you have given to this world and the, the ability that we have here, Lord. Help us not to waste our time on things that aren't important or to lose our focus on things that aren't important. Lord, help us to keep our focus on you and the work that you have done on the cross. And because of that, and how it changes our lives, help us to also share that good news with a hurting, hurting world. Help us to continue to share that news with the Grand Forks community, with those around us, with our friends and family. Thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you love us, that you are powerful and that you've saved us, you've redeemed us. Help us to live like it and live like we mean it. Lord, we thank you so much for these promises, and we thank you that, that you are here for us, that you forgive us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, may God bless you this week. May you go out with intention and purpose into your week, and we thank you so much for joining us here this morning. God bless.